Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Back and better than ever coming off of our biggest week. Mm-hmm. In Uncommon Deeds history. The Empire is building. Brick by brick. Lord Thomas, in your quest to beseech support. And we got some support. Yeah, yeah we got it, man. Holy crap. It was awesome. We went Huge. Out, we had a good week. We went up in a decent amount of likes. Yep. So I'm happy with that. Yep. Lord Thomas is pleased. It's not. It's not a diatribe. Not a diatribe. That's the best word. Who said it? I forget who. <laughs> diatribe. Who? But good. no, a uh, a big week. Yeah. Dave Dion breaking all our records. Yeah. No, it's our listeners breaking all the records. Touche. All right. But yeah, really, it's Dave Dion. It's a combination. Derek O'Donnell was already breaking records and is still huge. But like, apparently, Dave Dion is still very popular. Or you and I are just getting more and more popular. Is that what that is? (laughs) Everyone's looking like, who is Dave talking to? Who? Holy, holy crap. He is talking to Justin and Tom. Share, share, share. Honey, honey, clear the calendar. Find a sitter. All those messages we got. Dave was good, but we'd really like to hear more Justin and Tom. We have more one-on-one with Justin and Tom. Those are messages we don't actually ever Never get. Seen that ever. Uh, we Wait, had good you. response leading up to this show too uh, with Jamie Obi, um, yeah. which was really cool because uh, you know he, he's obviously hugely accomplished, three-time Bush North champion, two-time Oxford two fifty one, and everything. But he's not you know Dave Dion or Nick Sweet popular, um, and he's not Derek O'Donnell hated. Um, he's just kind of one of those solid guys that's always in the top five, but never makes a lot of noise. But we had a huge response from people leading up to this show. So um, I'm excited for where this one's going. And this one was a good conversation and went in kind of a lot of different places like most of our episodes do. Yeah, but, we we learned a lot in this one that we didn't know. Yeah. And we're excited for you to hear it. Yeah. We got some big stuff planned hopefully for the next coming episodes. And maybe we'll get more into that in the close of Mm -hmm. today's show. But this one is a little bit on the short side by, by our usual standards coming in at about an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. About an hour shorter than Dave Dion. Yeah. (laughs) And by a little more than an hour shorter. 
Um, <laughs> so we get all these great comments and messages from people who are like traveling Vermont to Massachusetts or going across New England. Like, hey, I listened to the Dave episode as I drove across New England. <laughs> Threw in a Brian Hoare two-parter and yeah i was in california (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're keeping this one this one today a little bit briefer by our standards this is a lunch break Uh, a little more than a lunch break what kind of lunch um, breaks are you getting well yeah right but you know the i guess it wasn't frustrating but part that we kind of had to squeeze out of Jamie Elby was talking about himself. Um, you know, he didn't want to pump himself up a lot and, uh, which is really cool. Um, he was, he always put a lot of the praise on his team, his crew, his family, um, which is, you know, that's, that's the, that's what a racer is supposed to do. Right. Is um, it's a, it's, it's a team sport and he certainly, put it out there like that. And it's fun when we get to hear about, you know, older drivers that we're never going to get to talk to, you know, Stub mm-hmm. Fadden was yeah. about as big a legend as you can get. And unfortunately he's passed on, but just some great stories yeah, from Jamie and one in particular that you hadn't heard before, I hadn't heard before. Yeah. That was like, holy crap. That yeah. is super cool. Way, way, way unexpected. Um yeah, really, really cool stuff. And we learned more about Jamie that uh that we just didn't have any idea. I mean, this guy has done every form of racing. Except for maybe monster trucks with John Zimmer, but <laughs> he's done uh, you know, snowmobiles which we didn't know anything about um he's involved in road racing now um he did he did some drag racing um and he was getting pretty serious about it apparently when he decided to go stock car racing and um you know i mentioned in the in the show that he knew my dad they grew up racing on the streets um in high school together at uh they were in the tech program at burlington high school and my dad always told me that uh jamie had a, a Chevy, uh, 57 Chevy or 55, maybe. I don't know that the whole hood and, and fenders and nose were all one piece fiberglass and it would lift off. And it was just a sweet looking ride. My dad and I had an AMX and they'd race each other all the time and nobody could beat Jamie, but, uh, that's where he was at. Well, he was a little more serious about it than that. Uh, when he got into stock car racing and started from the ground up. Um, but he had already done a ton of stuff before that it's pretty cool absolutely and we don't want to keep you waiting too long so we're going to go ahead now and let justin introduce today's guest our guest today is one of vermont's favorite racers but he's been living in new hampshire for a longer time than he's been in vermont we're not going to talk about that though that's all right he's a two-time oxford 250 winner a three-time nascar bush north series champion and he's won all the crown jewels uh, he is one of the most accomplished drivers that uh, you're ever going to see in the Northeast, and we're proud to have him here on Uncommon Deeds. Welcome, Jamie Obi. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. So, Jamie, uh, you and I go back a long, long way. 
uh, and I think I still had diapers on at that point. Um, and, uh, you were the first driver I ever met. Um, and that was through my dad. You guys kind of grew up a little bit together in high school. Yeah, that's, that's going back quite a ways. Uh, I guess maybe that means I've been racing too long. I don't know, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, you've been a, a great friend and uh, done a lot for racing in the Northeast. And I really appreciate what you guys do. You're awesome. For your credit, I think Justin might have been in diapers a little longer than than most. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was I was 15. Yeah, you know, those were the good old days. They're still good today, but <clears throat> boy, racing was great back then. And I just I just had a lot of great teachers, and you know, I, I've had a lot of success in the Northeast thanks to uh, thanks to you know the Cabanas and the Bobby Dragons and Beaver Dragons and you know Robbie Crouch and all you know really great race car drivers. I learned a lot. I, I never raced anything before we got started at Catamount and took it from there and I just fell in love with it. Before we get into that, and we definitely want to get into that, how do you remember motorsports coming into your life? When do you remember those first memories? Well, I, I raced snowmobiles in, in high school an awful lot. We did a lot of circle track stuff, cross-country stuff, drag racing. And in high school, I got into drag racing. And I thought, you know, I don't think I'm interested in that circle track stuff at all. But uh, I wanted to buy this motor off of, off of one of my roommates, uh, and he had a circle track car. And he said, well, I'll sell it to you, but you got to try going to Catamount Stadium and driving it. And uh, his brother was Jay Yance, was a very accomplished sportsman driver in the, in the Northeast. And, uh, and he said, you know, my brother will help you. So I said, well, I'll try it because I really wanted to buy this motor off him. So I went over to Catamount, and, you know, we, we did a few laps, and I was, Jay came over and asked me, uh, how do you like that? I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, just go out there and just keep driving it in deeper and deeper until you finally spin out, and you'll know that's as hard as you can go. So like a fool, young fool, I, I went out there, and I did exactly that, spun out. I said, well, I guess that's it. And, and I fell right in love with it. I couldn't think of anything but circle track racing from that point on. It's been, been really a lot of fun. You know, I'm always really curious because I never got to experience it. And I always find myself wanting to ask this when we talk to guys like you. Explain the Catamount atmosphere for, you know, kids my age who only really remember Thunder Road as a kid. Well, it was, it was phenomenal. It was the greatest track I've ever raced at. I loved it. It wasn't too far from our, our home down in Charlotte, Vermont. And it just... uh I, I remember going there as a, as a youngster. I didn't, my father, you know, we were farmers, so we didn't do much of anything but work. But I got my cousin to take me up to Catamount, and I remember watching the Modifieds, uh, Rainy Goddard and Marcel Goddard and Rainy Charlene and, you know, the Dragons and all that. And I thought, boy, that is pretty cool. But I'd never really had much of a chance to go see much of it. And, and going there, the, the place was full. The, the grandstands were packed. And, you know, there was, it was like, uh, something I've never seen before, you know, and I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And I kind of forgot about it for a while until the opportunity came up to try it. And it just, I mean, Catamount stadium was, a, was an awesome racetrack. I just, I learned more. That's where I learned how to race. And then I got going to Thunder road and that was quite a project, but we got it, you know, and I turned out to love Thunder road just as much. So, you know, we had some great, great racing and great race car drivers back in those days. I had the best teachers you could ever ask for in the world. Jamie, I'm a little bit curious that, you know, I guess I never really thought of it until right now, but growing up in Ferrisburg, Charlotte area, um, did you ever get to Otter Creek Speedway when you were a little? 
I did. The you first did. track I ever went to, I, uh, my dad was in the fire department, and they used to go down and kind of, you know, work at concessions and the, the ambulances and stuff like that. And so I did get to go to one, and it, it was pretty wild. Boy, the track was rough, and I remember uh, this guy flipping over, got into a rut, flipped his car. They, he was knocked out cold. They threw him in the ambulance, and they dragged him up the hill. He got halfway up the hill, and he jumped out of the ambulance. And ran back down. I'm going to go racing somewhere. I, I thought that was the wildest thing I ever thought. I said, well, I'd be cool to do it. But I never, ever thought, you know, that I would end up being able to be a race car driver. I just, that wasn't in my plan. But boy, am I sure glad I did. <laughs> I wish I'd seen that. That was amazing. <laughs> oh, uh. it, it was wild. It was really, truly wild. Uh, my cousin and I sat there and watched it and said, wow. You know, we thought the guy was dead. And he just ran right back down there, and he was going to get that car going again. I said, man, that's some enthusiasm. <laughs> we were pretty young. You know, we were just young kids at the time. But it was interesting. But, you know, I kind of got away from it. We just didn't have much time on the farm. You know, we always built these crazy things, you know, and beat the tractors and had old trucks to drive around the field. And, you know, at one point we had our own uh, own racetrack. My my dad didn't know about it till he went out to cut the hay. But my cousin and I had a – had a track out back at his dad's uh, car dealership and his dad would go to Albany, New York to buy cars every Thursday. And, you know, we'd go out on that field and race all day long and have a ball. It was pretty cool. So I guess I kind of had it in me, but I, I didn't think it would ever materialize. So you kind of hinted at it before that you had a lot of people who were willing to help you when you started. Did you find just a really good atmosphere of, drivers who are willing to help you know a young kid starting out absolutely absolutely it was uh i don't know that it's that much uh you know i don't think there's that much help out there anymore it's kind of a different world out there when you're getting started i mean a lot of kids got a lot of money but it was it was a ball growing up i mean jay yance helped me uh uh stub fatten as i got going a little bit better and bobby dragon and, and and robbie crouch i mean i used to go up and talk with robbie and you know, those guys, they all helped me tremendously. You know, John Paul Cabana, he helped me because he showed me all the trick ways to get around a racetrack. And, uh, you know, that was from just following him. But he, he, he was a great racer, man. So you, you started off in the um, – I mean, today fans would think of him as like a flying tiger or, um, yeah, you know, a yeah, super stock or something like that. But you were in the Grand Americans. The Grand Americans, yeah. Yeah, we were one of the first first guys. Larry Karen, I think, was the first to do a – do a six cylinder, but we, uh, I, when I fell in love with circle track racing, I had a beautiful drag car. It was an Anglia. It was beautifully done. It was done in California and I was getting into drag racing pretty good. But once I did the Catamount stadium thing, I fell in love with it. And, uh, got a guy came down and saw me and, uh, he wanted to trade his race cars. He had a school bus and two race cars and a whole garage full of parts and stuff. And I thought about it for a while and I, you know, I, I did a little dickering with him and I got a little cash out of him and I made the trade. Probably the craziest thing I ever did. The car was beautiful, but I got started and we built our own uh, Camaro that year, the next year, after I ran his a bit and had tremendous luck with it. It was it was awesome. So, you know, kind of cool. Kind of cool way back then. It was fun racing. You know, we didn't do good at first. I mean, the first car I ever had was a 57 Chevy that had actually won some races, but it was beat and it was a tank. And uh, Jay answered, this is going to be a great car for you to run with to learn how to drive. And he was, he was definitely right. It was a good car. I had a lot of fun with it. I have the same theory when it comes to getting kids their first car when they turn 16. 
Don't get them something nice. Get them something they could bounce off and keep going. Yeah, I think that's probably a good, true words. And my daughter got her license, so I didn't want her to drive anything but a Suburban, you know, something big. And, uh, hey, she's doing pretty good. She got in my race car here oh, probably 10 years ago. And I said, Dad, I think I'm ready to try this. And I said, you get out of there. You're going to college. <laughs> and she did. Really proud of her. Uh, well, Heather's your daughter. Heather's certainly got the racing bug. I mean, she is she's into it. I think more than you are. Oh, I think she really is. I mean, she takes care of all the. You know, I'm not I'm not great at the social media stuff, so she takes care of that for me. And you know, she's uh, she's with Walt Hammond. They're in the dirt dirt track stuff. They they get all over the freaking place, and he, they're starting. To, him and his dad are really. It's a really neat thing they're doing. Uh, you know, they run together and they do all their own work. And, they, they got the show with Heather uh, hustling the high side. Yeah. It's a really cool show. And she is right into it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. She's done well. So going back to kind of those those early years, when do you remember your first real confidence builder? Well, after I spun that car at Catamount, the first time I ever drove it, and I didn't flip over, and I got back on the track, and I ran pretty good. That was, uh, that was a lot of – I said, I can do this. You know, I can do this. And, uh, you know, we just went for a couple of years and did good. When I did the, the six cylinder deal, uh, you know, I won a couple of races and, and that built my confidence greatly. And I just had a lot of help from, uh, the local people. I had a friend, Al Boyce, who, uh, came aboard. He used to race down south. He raced with the, at the Allisons and all those guys. And he took an interest in me and he helped me and he, he bought me a few things to help me race and stuff. And, He'd pat me on the back and tell me, you can do this. You're good. You know, I knew I really wasn't good, but, you know, I said, oh, maybe I can get good. I don't know. So we just kept working at it. And, uh, you know, and as we moved up the ranks, it, I just had a lot of opportunity that uh, presented itself to me. I, I don't know if I was lucky. Uh, Ken Squires had a lot to do with me staying with it. You know, I'm Vermont boy, and he liked that. And when I was down in the low ranks, he said, well, you just got to keep digging. You just got to keep digging. And when you get it, so you can – feel really confident and start winning some races. You let me know. And then, then maybe I can try to help you. Well, you know, I approached him several times. And he goes, you're not ready. You're not ready. And then one day I approached him. I think I'd won a race. And I said, Oh, it's at the end of the year. And I said, I want to move up. I want to move up to the sportsman division or, you know, and, and but I, I don't know how to do that. And he goes, well, what do you got in mind? And we kind of went over it and said, well, you got to go get a sponsor. And he did a little bit to help me, but boy, he schooled me. He, ta he, he talked to me, he sat me down. He said, this is what you need to do, Jamie. You need to, first of all, go get a haircut. Get yourself a nice sports coat. <laughs> and it went on and it was great. You know, he, he was, a, he was a great inspiration for me. I, I love the guy anyway. And so, you know, I got a meeting with Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, he might've had something to do with that. I don't know if he did or he didn't. Uh, but it, the guy hated, hated racing. But uh, one thing Ken told me was this guy's a, he owns, he owns Coca-Cola in Burlington. He said, he owns a baseball team. He said, so you better learn everything you can learn about baseball. Mm -hmm. I said, really? So I got a sports coat. I got a haircut and I studied the team and went in. I, I got a meeting with him. I sat down and said, first of all, I'm going to tell you that I don't want anything to do with racing. I said, really? Well, I said, that's too bad. I said, Cause you're right into baseball. I said, you got a great team. And I, I had a lot of information stored in my brain, the little brain that I have. And uh, we talked about baseball and then he said, well, what can you do for my, my company here? And I had that right down, Pat. I'd been just rehearsing it, practicing it. 
we got talking. He goes, eh, I like you. He said, maybe I will do something for you. So he jumped aboard with us and that really got me going. And that, and that talked about confidence that, that built my, I think Ken Squires is the one that built my confidence. A, a big sponsor, landing a big sponsor is, is bigger than any win when you're, especially when you're starting out, but you know, you can't go fast unless you got the funding and I, I you know, Coca-Cola was on your cars for a long, long time. Yeah, they were. And uh, Lee Kilburn, he was, he was a great sponsor. A guy that did not like racing, you know, he kind of fell in love with it and, it was it was a great deal. It wasn't a huge sponsor, but it was huge for me. I mean, anytime you got anything, he was a farm boy trying to raise a couple bucks. I worked night and day. I worked on the farm. I had a had a job, another job that I worked at, and then eventually I got my own auto repair business, and you know, everything went back into racing. And I think about, it, I said, man, I don't know how I did it, but it was just determination and a lot of people helping me along the way. They just, you know, racing was big back then, and it still is big, but. I, I think it, you know, they talked about it being a family sport. It certainly was. It was more than a family sport. Everybody that was involved with it helped me, loaned me stuff. I didn't have any tools when I first started. You know, I was, was your, borrowing stuff from everybody. <laughs> was, was your was family pretty, involved in your race team or was it just you and some buddies? No, my, my brothers were very involved. Uh, my two, the twin brothers, Peter and Paul, uh, got in there. They worked like dogs with me. Uh, I mean, we worked all the time. We tried things and, uh, they were a lot smarter than me. They could figure out some of the stuff that needed to happen in the handling department. And I knew how to build the motors. So I built the motors and they kind of took care of the cars and kind of went right up through with me. And my, my brother, Peter still goes to some races with me every once in a while. So it, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. So what's that, what's that transition like? I mean, you can do a lot worse than, than Jay Yance as, as a mentor, um, especially, you know, in those, in those support divisions, the grand Americans and, and he evolved into the tigers. Um, but it's a big, big leap in, you know, 1979, 1980 to, to go from a six cylinder Camaro banging around Thunder Road and Catamount to you're racing Dick McCabe and Bobby Dragon and Beaver Dragon and Robbie Crouch and all those guys now. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it was a, it was a big transition. And I, and the only reason I was really able to think about doing it financially was I, I was racing snowmobiles still and I won a big snowmobile race on Marble Island. It was a 250 mile cross-country race it was a national race and i won the thing on a john deere my good friend ron como raced for john deere it helped develop their racing sled at winnipeg st paul deal and uh so he got me hooked up with that we won the race and made about i don't know around 15 grand i guess it was and that was a lot of money you know really wow what am i going to do and they they all donated the the sponsor donated his money back towards my circle track asphalt racing and so did uh, ron my mechanic and we headed to North Carolina, or we, we headed down to Virginia, down to Manuel Zavakis, and bought a brand-new professional-built chassis, you know, and a good set of brakes, and came home, and from there, it went great. Stubb Fadden helped me so much. He was the dealer that kind of got me hooked up down there, and Stubby would help me constantly, and did, did almost until the day he died. The greatest man I ever knew in my life. Not to get sidetracked, but how big was snowmobile racing yeah at that point well it, it was pretty big uh we did a lot of it a lot of barnyard racing and i got i got some sponsorship from mercury and i uh, ran a little mercury snow twister did really well with it i went out to new york uh, we had to do seven ussa races with it and the first two nights i didn't even qualify and the guy out there helped me showed me a few things and we started doing really good we came home and we won everything the only race we didn't win was up in georgia vermont Joey LeCare, a name everybody's familiar with, and we'd still race against each other. 
he was up there with a guy named Bob Ford, and uh, they whipped my butt. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I don't know how that guy could have beat me. I've won everything here, right? So it was pretty big. There was a lot of sleds there. And Joey, you know, knowing Joey, and he's a good friend of mine. I like him a lot. And he said, well, put your money where your mouth is. You can protest us. Wrong thing to say. I didn't have any money, but my mechanic didn't take that for about two minutes. Threw the money down, tore him down. He was illegal as heck. They threw him out. I didn't I didn't even know if I got the trophy. I didn't even want it. I just said, no, that, that can't be, you know. Joey, he's a character. We talk about it once in a while. I just raced against him uh, uh, Saturday night up at White Mountain, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that Good sounds time. Like Joey. That yeah, sounds that like sounds Joey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I didn't realize that you were a snowmobile racer. So you've done drag racing. You've done snowmobile racing. You've done uh, the asphalt stuff, obviously, in the circle track. And mm-hmm. we get to it, but you're you're sort of a road course aficionado now. Um, yes, I uh yeah, I, I manage a team for uh, Tom Sheehan uh, over here. It's a Trans Am 2 series. We go all over the country. Uh, got an awesome operation going. Uh, he's a really good driver. He's uh, he's also the, the man that bought me a brand-new late model this year to run with. It. He and I both go out and run uh, race. You know, I, I thought it would be a great experience for him to get into the short track stuff. But the road racing stuff, stuff is really a lot of fun. They're, the cars are much like we run in the AC, ACT Tour. Yeah. Matter yeah. of fact, they're the same chassis, basically. So, you know, I was kind of familiar with it, and uh, we're having a good time with it. And he's having a great time doing the circle track stuff. He's not very experienced yet, but he's getting better every time out. When Justin brings up the road course stuff, when we talked to Brian Hoare a couple months ago, he said he fell in love when he first got on a road course and learned to love them. What's that transition like? It's unbelievable, and it's very slow for me. When, when I did it, I should have scraped a few bucks together and went through a road road racing school like a lot of guys did because that was really helpful i just didn't get it for a while it was fun i loved doing it i couldn't afford to do it because it was very expensive you know you needed good brakes and it was hard on the motor and stuff like that but it was it was probably some of the most fun i ever had in the early beginnings of it all it just you know it was like like run from the cops on the street you know you ever got chased by a policeman because you were speeding and you got away from them that's what i felt like when i first started road racing but it was a ball it was a lot of fun. And then finally, uh, Dale Quarterly helped me quite a bit. Uh, he, he told me some things. He said, this is what you're doing wrong, man. You got to do this or that. And so I listened to him, and I did get a lot better. And Brad Leighton, I followed him a lot. And he was really good. And, of course, Brian Wall, I mean, I don't know how you beat him back then. He was he was just awesome. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I guess your your first experience with road racing would have been probably a Briar, which is now New Hampshire Motor Speedway. But you're you're yeah. throwing around late model sportsmen, you know the the NASCAR late model yeah. sportsmen, not not the tour cars like we, what we've got right now with ACT. But that's a completely different race car than than a purpose built road course car. Exactly. You know the car I ran over there at Briar the first time was my little uh, Buick uh, Century, the one I won two two fifties with. Eventually, I, I think I spun that thing out ten times. I I just I had no idea what I was doing and I didn't really have much of an idea how to set it up. But we went to the race and tried it and it was kind of cool. I wasn't really comfortable. I, I don't think I was very close in the setup. But, you know, it was crazy. I can remember just spinning out time after time and thinking, "Oh man, I'm never getting this." But you know, it, was, it wasn't a special built car like these nowadays. I mean, we got some really nice stuff now. Our, our equipment over here in Bow is just it's second to none. It's, it's beautiful stuff. How much did you slash do you enjoy the 
going to a new track, trying something different, doing a different discipline than you're used to. Oh, I liked it. And I always did like it. I, I, I really enjoyed throughout my whole racing career, you know, experiencing new racetracks. And I, I was pretty lucky at most of them. I did caught on fairly quick. It was, you know, it was a, it was a fun learning curve and it's a, it's a really great experience. The road racing thing is, is the same thing. Every time we go out, we, uh, you know, we go to road America, we go out to Texas, we go to California, we go all over the country and it's just, I'm still learning. I, I'm still, there's a lot to learn. You know, we've got a good friend in Florida that uh, built our cars, Mike Cope, uh, Mike Cope racing. And he's been a oh, tremendous, yeah. and Mike Cope was quite a circle track racer back in his day. I raced sure. against him. So I've been friends with him for a long time, but it's been, uh, been great. And, and it's a lot of fun, but we're having fun doing whenever we can. We try to do some circle track stuff and it's a lot of fun. So let's, before we, before we really get into what you're doing currently, let's, let's start back with, with, you know, your early days in, in the late models, um, on the NASCAR North tour, you, you know, you, you'd come off some pretty successful runs in the Grand Am cars. Um, but that transition was, you know, you, you went through some real lean years, those first, first four or five years on tour. Oh yeah. Oh, well, it was tough. It was a, it was a learning curve. It was just, you know, we didn't have a lot of financial backing back then. We did what we could do. And, uh, it just, it was really, really, and, and the, and the drivers we were racing against were great. They, they, you know, they're all, I always thought they were always way better than anything I ever did. And, and I really do believe that too. Those guys were, you know, they knew how to race and it was fun to race with them. And, but I had to kind of watch for a few years and do the best I could do. And, you know, Andy Costello, he was an engine builder out of, he worked for Hector Leclerc for years. And, you know, Andy, Andy did a, a tremendous things helping me build the motors to get me started. And you know, I really appreciated that, but it was, uh, it was tough sledding in the beginning. It was, uh, I remember I, I wrecked a, wrecked that new car that I bought and, uh, I was all done. I was broke, didn't have a penny. We were out of business basically. And, I just said, well, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden, you know, the phone rings and it's uh, Tom Curley. He said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm pretty much done. I don't think we're going to be able to keep going. He said, well, you need to uh, call Stubb fat enough. He, he made a phone call to me. And so I called Stubby up and Stubby said, you get your butt down to, uh, down to Virginia and get a snout put on that car and you get your, you know, back there. He said, I'll, I'll fund the thing for a while. You pay me back as you can. And I went, are you kidding me? He goes, no. You get down there and do that. And so we did. Rick Daniel went down with me and we put it all back together and came back and ran great when we got back. It was awesome. It was fun, fun times. Stubby funded that, that car for you. And everything. I mean, I just, I didn't, I was broke. I was seriously broke. And I'd spent more than I should have already. And the next thing I know, you know, here we are in Virginia, you know, getting it, getting it put back together. And it just carried me on. And, and that, that's overwhelming when somebody reaches out to you and does that. Uh, Tom, Tom helped out. Tom said, well, you know, like if you need some help to get down there, you know, you, uh, I got, I've got a little fun set aside here and we'll, you know, we'll help you out. I said, really? He said, yep. So he sent me $500, which was a big help, you know, and, you know, I said, oh, you know, I'll pay you back as soon as I can. He said, oh, no, you will. And, and he was right. Every purse, there was, you know, maybe a hundred dollars taken out. <laughs> Yeah. But we got him picked off, and that's the kind of you know kind of help that I got. I got a lot of help from a lot of people. It was so overwhelming thinking back on it. I, sometimes I used to say, "I can't keep doing this. this is crazy." But 
looking back on it now, I wouldn't change a damn thing. I bet I can imagine. And it sounds like without someone like Stubb, there wouldn't be a Jamie Obi as we see him now. Absolutely. The truest words you ever said. There's no way I could have kept going. Uh, Al Boyce, uh, he's, you know, he's passed now, but he was a tremendous uh, leader for me. You know, he just kept, kept me going no matter what. And then, you know, Stubby, we'd go over there and he, you know, and he helped me with the setups. Uh, he, he had the same type of car. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a Emmanuel Zavakis car. And uh, so he'd give me the setups and, and he'd come over and he'd check with me at the races and tell me, oh, you got to do this and do that. And, you know, that, that's kind of, I don't know if that stuff happens much anymore. It's really, it's, it's quite a, quite a thing, you know, and Alvin and those guys and Frankie Stoddard, you know, and all those freaking guys helped me so much. It was, it's unbelievable. You know, uh, you know, my cousins, Marcel Marcotte helped me for years and years. And now my, my godson, Travis, he's still with me spotting and he's, he's a tremendous, tremendous aspect for me. He keeps me going. I, Ah, I've had enough. I'm getting too old for this. No, no, no. You got to go. You got to go. And I end up going. <laughs> yeah. Travis definitely is. He's your biggest cheerleader. Uh, if it's not your daughter, Heather, then it's, it's certainly Travis. And yeah, yeah. I can't I remember having down. those conversations with you where you're like, I don't know. And, and Travis like, yep, we're doing it. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Justin, we were down at devil's bowl for a few years and had a ball down there. You know, Mike Bruno did a great job with that track and it was really a lot of fun. He had called me, he knew I had a couple of late models. He said, Hey, would you consider coming down and running? You know, we need some cars. And I said, Mike, I'll come down. So I was kind of involved with Mike years ago. So we started running down there and I fell in love with that place. I just loved to go there. We didn't have a lot of time because I was road racing also. And, uh, geez, it was a ball. You know, I, I, I want to race down there or I want a couple of them down there. And I said to my, my daughter, I said, I'm there. Now I can retire. I want to race. You see me win. No, dad, you're not retiring. <laughs> But we're still at it, just just having fun now. Not not too serious about it, but we're having fun. So you go from seventy eight through eighty two without any wins, no and then wins. finally in eighty three, you kind of you break through the NASCAR North Tour at Catamount. How big was it to you know steal a basketball term to see the ball go through the hoop? Oh, it was the biggest thing. You know, the night before or maybe it was the two nights before we were at uh, Claremont, I believe. And I led that race and I had that race won. And I looked in the mirror and Robbie Crouch was all over me. And Robbie Crouch is one of the greatest drivers I ever raced against. You know, he was dogging me, dogging me. And I looked in the mirror and he, I don't know if he saw my head go up, but he went around me and blew me away and won the race. And I went home. I did not sleep. And I went back to Catamount. It was the next night, I believe. And, uh, and, that, and, I, and I finally got it done over there at Catamount the next night. I beat Randy LaJoy. LaJoy was all over me, but I'll tell you what, I never ever even gotten near looking at that mirror. And that was our first win. And it was like, oh, it was a great, great win. I mean, it was awesome. I, I just couldn't believe all the work that we put in for so many years, you know, finally paid off right there in front of our hometown crowd. It was awesome. Well, it was the Governor's Cup, too. And that's, that's you know, one of the big, that was a huge deal, bigger then than it, than it is now. Yeah, that was a huge deal. It was that that was uh I didn't even know how to act, man. I didn't know uh, I boy, this is something else, you know. But it was a, it was a great boost, boy, and boy, it took off from there. Yeah, you certainly started to become, you know, more consistent and and uh you know, really a title contender, you know, year in and year out even if the wins weren't coming regularly. 
you know, you were always in the conversation as, as a guy to watch. Well, you know, we always, we sat down and, you know, I think it was from the, from the sportsman division that I ran that I learned how to chase points. And in, in when I first started, I had to chase points because there was a point fund at the end of the year. And of course, mm-hmm. I always brainwashed myself into thinking I have, I have to do well to get money at the end of the year. And I, I think we could have won a lot more races than we did, but, and, and Robbie Crouch was, a, he, he was hard to beat, man. That guy won about everything. So if I could ever finish second to him, I was happy and try to stay in the points, stay in the points. And we worked at that. You know, I'm sure we gave up some wins, but you know, that made me a, it made me a championship contender. I learned how to do it. And there's a lot to that. You know, you can't be enemies with anybody. You have to be friends with everybody. You get people mad at you. Well, you're not going to win a championship. They'll take you out. You know, that's just the way it was back then. And, Fortunately, I got along good with everybody, and yeah, I made some mistakes along the way, but hey, it worked out. You had Alan Avery behind you for a very, very long time uh, with mountain racing, um, and that, that number 41, you know, the red car, that was that was your trademark for a long time with that team. Uh, sure it was. You know, and Alan and Patrick Henry and Peter Smith, uh, mountain racing, uh, that was uh, the group behind mountain racing, and uh, they kind of got into it, you know, Peter was running for the governorship up there in Vermont and you know I'm, I'm sure and he never told me this, so I always surmise that you know the blue collar workers at Thunder Road you know if you can get them on your side you, you're getting a lot of votes you know and so I think that's kind of why they got into it and uh, you know they started with somebody else and then they eventually came around to help me um, and it, it worked out beautifully it was a great great partnership between us and Mountain Race and they, they they gave me the tools that I needed and that's really where my whole career turned around they provided you know they didn't yeah they all had a little bit of money but they didn't waste a penny and and they trusted me to to really run the whole organization and give them their budget and we stuck within our budget and believe it or not back in those days you know we were spending like $150,000 a year through those guys but we were earning 150,000 a year so it was actually a wash deal which you couldn't do that anyway right now now in this day but yeah you know we're the television programs and you know, the, the purses were good, and it was it was really fun. I made a living doing it. How much learning did you have to do to be able to kind of run that show and run it efficiently? Well, a lot. Uh, you know, I was, you know, like I said, I was kind of a farm boy, and you know, I had a Alan. Alan was awesome. He he really helped me through it, and uh, you know, Patrick Henry is a very very uh, well known and very successful businessman. They really, you know, they, I guess they took a liking to me and, and they really trusted me with everything and taught me how to do it and advised me. And, uh, you know, and it, it turned out to be very successful. I'm just curious because you brought him up. Was Robbie your favorite favorite person to beat when you could? Well, he certainly was. I mean, there was a number of guys, but boy, that guy was the smoothest driver I've ever raced against. You know, he'd go out in time trial and he'd look like he was going slow and he'd win the pole every week, you know. And Robbie gave me a lot of advice throughout my early days. And I said, Jamie, I'll tell you what you're doing wrong. You're trying to get too much too quick. So what do you mean, Robbie? He goes, you're trying to get three car lengths when you need to get three feet. And then the next lap, get three feet more. He said, you've got to calm down a little bit. And probably the best words I ever heard. And the other night up at uh, White Mountain, here I found myself driving in, trying to get three car lengths. And <laughs> doing what I did when I started. It was crazy. And I thought of Robbie then. I went, well, I better think about this for a while. We kind of calmed down, and we got our way up through there. We didn't do bad. But, yeah, Robbie was certainly uh, 
certainly awesome. He, he spent some time with me. You know, he, he, I'd go up to Renee's place up to where his shop was, and I just had a lot of respect for him. They built their own cars. They built their own motors. And, and C.A. Crouch, Rob, Robbie's dad, he was a tremendous influence on me. You know, he, he just, he, he would help me do anything I needed, and he worked for me for a while, and it was, it was awesome times. You mentioned it, and we've talked to a few current drivers as we've done this, and someone like a Chip Grenier, who's been around a long time, says it isn't the same now. He can go maybe talk to a few people, and they might give him a nudge to the right ballpark maybe of where they are if they're fast, but they're not going to tell him where they're at. Are you... Or, or buy you a car. Right. Zervakis. That is also true. Are you paying it forward now in the latter stages of your racing career to to any of the young drivers who want to listen? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I had so much help that I'd, I'd be a fool not to help anybody that wants to listen. I don't, you know, force anything on anybody. Anybody can come to me and ask me anything. And not that I know much, but I, I would help anybody get started. Even even guys. And and this, the older guys that are still racing still will. I don't think that's changed much. The younger kids, it's a different generation. It's a good generation, but uh, they do things different. They uh, they drive a lot different. Uh, I'm not going to say they don't have any respect, but some of them are pretty wild. And, you know, the, the old guys, they wouldn't put up with that. But it seems to be the thing that's out there these days. And, you know, I'm not talking about locally here even. Just throughout the whole country, it's pretty wild, and it's just, a lot of money influxed into these teams now. You know, like the younger kids uh, have no idea what it is to do what we did. And I say we, there's a bunch of us that came up through the ranks together that worked night and day, worked a day job, worked all night, and, you know, tried to raise money anyway, go to the bank and borrow money to keep going. You know, that kind of thing doesn't really happen, I don't think, too much anymore. And, you know, that's, that's okay. Uh, there's, there's some great young drivers out there. Man, I have a hard time keeping up with them. They, they're some good shoes. But Do a lot of them haven't had to work like a lot of the old guys. I mean, that's all right, too, though. Different time, I, you know. I, I want to put you on the spot about that. You've um, – take this in the best possible way because uh, I don't mean it in a negative way in any way, but you've sort of made a, a living the last several years um, helping those kids who, you know, dad's got a big checkbook or grandfather has a big checkbook and they race for a year or two, and then they're out of money. That, that's got to be frustrating for you. I mean, it's nice to have a paycheck, and you don't, you, know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you by any means. But, you know, do you get tired of that? <laughs> well, you know, I love racing. I love uh, being in this industry, working it, working every day. I mean, when I, when I go to work, it's not even going to work. It's going to, you know, like it's going on a field trip every, every day. You know, some days get long, you know. Do I get sick of that? I haven't had a lot of that. I, I've helped some uh, some people that uh, weren't exactly 100%, I guess. You know, they, they were kind of squirrely. They were kind of – they had money and thought they were going to buy their way in and really had very little talent. I tried my best to get them as good as I could. And then I've worked for guys that had a lot of money that were tremendous race car drivers. We worked in California for three, four years. Yep. And, you know, I got a chance to go down and run some trucks with a – you know, an underfunded truck team, but – I got to be a crew chief for TJ Bell down there. And, you know, TJ, he ran pretty good. You know, he still runs once in a while. Uh, so I've had a lot of chances to uh, to work with a lot of different uh, 
areas of money, I guess you might say, but you know, it takes money to do this. And a guy told me, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Dick Berger on or somebody said, Jamie, to stay in this sport, as long as you have, you just keep driving. But I said, yeah, Dick, I, I got to make a living. You know, I made a living driving, but I need to, you know, make a living working on this stuff. And so I kind of found my way into road racing. Uh, it seems to be a lot of money around there. And, uh, the guys spend a lot of money. They don't earn the kind of money that we earned way back in the day, but they love doing it. And so I, I got involved with it, and uh, I, I'm really glad I did. I love Tom Sheehan, the guy that I work for. He's awesome. Uh, he's a self-made uh, businessman. That you know, he spends what he needs to spend, and, and he didn't do it like me. He waited. He you know, he built a business, and he uh, and he and he came out strong with his business, earned some money, and he said, "Let's go racing." And that's how I kind of got involved with him. So. You know, I guess I can't say that I ever regret doing much of anything. I, you know, I've been involved with some, some shaky customers, you know, uh, along the way. But, uh, you know, in the last quite a few years, I've had great people to work for. I worked for a guy in New York, Tim Delaney, built a Bush team, you know, one of the most awesome guys I've ever worked for there again. So I've really been fortunate, you know, to, uh, to move, move ahead, finding financial help, you know, or teams, guys that had money that wanted to build teams. You know, and I worked at getting getting that far. You know, I had to work at, you know, who's doing what? And I paid attention, and, you know, it's really, really worked out pretty nicely for me. I feel like from an outside perspective, <clears throat> road racing seems like it's a lot more laid back, the atmosphere, and, and they are having more fun than we are on the asphalt ovals. Is that true? Well, in some, in some divisions, that is true. Our division, Trans Am 2, Man, I'm going to tell you something. It's heads up and it's hard racing, and it's a lot like short track racing up here. And we've got Rafa Montos and Thomas Merrill. We've got like 10 pro drivers that are in our division right now. So if we can go out and run, as our team runs in the top 10, it's a pretty a pretty good day. We've got some tremendous talent that's running, and they race hard. And it's the same cars we're racing with a little better motors. And it's, so it's, uh, it's tough. It's a lot of fun. When I first started, it seemed like it was laid back, but it's really, you know, escalated a lot in the last few years. Very, very competitive. Let's rewind a, li- a little bit. And, um, you know, you've won that, you won that Governor's Cup in 83 with NASCAR North. Mm-hmm. 86 is just a crazy, crazy year for that tour. Um, NASCAR leaves. They fire Tom Curley. The NASCAR North tour is dead. Um, but he starts he picks right up where he, where he left off with the American Canadian tour and you are on top of your game. And it's, it's kind of like you are, you are just climbing the hill at this point. You're not, you haven't even crested it and bang, you get the new England 300 um, in 86. And I mean, the wheels are really turning at that point for you. Yeah. Those are boy thinking back, you know, I, I very rarely think back that far, but boy, when you, when you mentioned that it was, it was quite a, quite an awesome climb and it I like you know I keep reverting back to Stub Fadden helping me so much and racing against Bobby Dragon and, and, and Crouch and all those guys boy it, it was awesome but the whole thing was kind of crazy when that happened with Tom and NASCAR and stuff and uh, you know we just uh, we, we kind of stuck with Tom and Tom started the AC you know ACT and said well we'll do it and we, we went along with that and we got look you know got lucky and won one of the Oxford 250s uh, with a with a NASCAR car that we had, a little little Chevy, and uh, you know it was it was quite a thing. And 
Kong and I didn't get along good for a while at all. He was really upset that I didn't run my ACT car at that race. Went to went to mountain race and said, I don't think that guy knows what he's doing. You guys better watch out. And they came to me and said, do you know what you're doing? I said, absolutely. You know, here I am. Boy, I got my neck stuck out now. But and we ended up winning the race. And, uh, you know, it, it turned out to be a great thing. But it really irritated Tom that I didn't, uh, didn't drive that car. And I didn't do it for any other reason. I thought that would be the best car. I had a lot of success there with it. I'd won a Diet Coke race there or whatever it was. So I, so we, we, we got lucky. And I, I remember clearly we were in the tech line over at the, I was up in the, the press booth and they were interviewing me and I, I'm standing next to Robert Black. It was the NASCAR race that year. And Robert Black uh, said, well, Jamie, do you ever consider going NASCAR racing? And they had my carburetor down in the, the tech center. Or down in the little tech building down there. And, it, you know, it was legal. It was a different type of carburetor, but it passed tech, and they said it was all good, and you don't need a carburetor at Oxford anyway. And, and I said, he said, well, they've they're got a question on your carburetor down there. And I said, Robert, I am absolutely going NASCAR racing. No question about it. And he looked at me and said, good enough. Well, I'll see you then. And uh, he got on his radio, and next thing I know, you know, we are, we made it through tech and everything, and, I guess that really frustrated Tom. That you know, he really heard about it and, you know, whatever, you know, it was 35 or $38,000. I wasn't about to give the wrong answer then. Yeah. So, well, you know, but you, you did have a choice in 87. Um, because I did. Yeah. The, the, the ACT went away from the steel body cars to the new plastic cars. And mm-hmm. that's the same year that, that NASCAR came back. They were gone in 86, but they came back in 87 and started the Bush North tour. And a lot mm-hmm. of guys defected away from, from Tom Curley's gig and, and they went back NASCAR racing, but you stuck around for that, that one year. And I know that you won the Oxford 250 and you say mm-hmm. that Tom was frustrated that you used the old style steel body car, but um, there's a video of him in an interview with John Spence on his TV show. And, if he was frustrated, he sure didn't let on. He seemed pretty happy about that, uh, that, that win because you were one of the, one of his guys. But yeah. Why yeah. did you, why did you stick with Curly and make that transition to the plastic cars when everybody else went with NASCAR? I, I believed in what he was doing. He was, uh, now people thought he was a maniac sometimes and a, you know, a dictator, but the man built a spectacular series. He did a great job when he was running the NASCAR deal, but you know, he built a great, great series and you know we we didn't get along that the next year when i finally did uh defect and go to uh go to nascar we uh we had some words and things didn't go well and so i i jumped ship and you know i figured well you know i probably gonna have to hang on here because it's not gonna be a fun trip but you know as, as we did you know we had a great year that year we won the championship we we had a great year and uh you know, I bumped into him and he congratulated me. It seemed like he had lightened up and I had to grow up a little bit too, I think. And, you know, the next year or so went by and I called him one day, you know, this thing was, these late models now that he's got, he had, he had really developed the series and, and it's a phenomenal series. It's, I think Tom Curley, Curley is a genius for doing what he did. And, uh, you know, like I called him and said, Tom, I said, uh, I'd like to build one of these cars and come back and race with you guys if that's acceptable. You know, and I said, I, I expect he's going to hang up on me, you know. He said, Jamie, come on down to Waterbury, and we'll sit down and we'll talk. So I, so I drove over, and I sat down with him. He shook my hand. He said, I'd love to have you come back. And I went, wow. You know, that went a lot better than I thought it was going to. 
And, uh, you know, he sat me down in the same chair that we, in his little office, the same chair that we had the big fight. And I walked out on him. I was sitting in the same exact chair. I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if this is going to go good or bad. But, you know, it, it went awesome. And I just respect Tom Curley for everything that he ever did. He probably one of the most fantastic promoters in this country. You mentioned that you jumped ship and you had a little bit of success, but I'd say that's a pretty big understatement. You yeah. won three straight championships. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, I don't know how we did it. Uh, you know, we had good funding and uh, I, I really learned how to point race, racing Robbie Crouch in the ACT tour, you know, or back in the, in the, even in the NASCAR days. He really taught me a lot about point racing. And, you know, we had a good idea going into the season that we would do good. And as a matter of fact, Billy Clark was running the school car then. And we were out at Ray Dillon's out in Indiana. We had two Ray Dillon cars that we ran for Tom Curley. And uh, I remember Billy Clark said, well, you think you're so, so good? I said, I never thought I was good. He said, well, why don't you come and try racing NASCAR? I said, I'm going to next year. He said, oh, you think you're going to win some? I said, man, I hope so. And uh, we went on, we won the thing, and he was the first one to come up to me after I won the championship. You saw a gun, he goes, you did it. I had forgotten all about, you know, it was kind of, we were drinking beer and talking down there in Indiana, you know. And But I laughed after that. I said, son of a gun. I, Billy, I said, I was just lucky, believe me. But, so now so did, you ha- did you have a plan a year ahead of time to move to NASCAR, even though you'd converted over to the plastic cars? Well, we, it wasn't really a year ahead. It was a... Uh, uh, we just, we, we kind of got in a little confrontation with Tom and, you know, I walked out and I, I walked out of the meeting and basically the car owners were there and, you know, they, they followed me out. What are you doing? I said, you guys are not going to, you know, you're not going to be willing to race with this kind of atmosphere and I don't want to either. So I guess, you know, we can sell everything and we'll be done with it. Hmm. And they said, well, what have you got in mind? I said, well, we could race NASCAR. We still got a NASCAR car and they were pretty upset too. It was, it was just not a good thing. I don't know how it got so screwed up, but it did. And we, we walked out of that meeting and we went NASCAR racing. We went to the first, first race at Lee with our ACT car and I got stuffed into the wall and I don't know. I just, uh, there were some things said over the radio and t- things were not good with Tom and I at that point. And they just said, all right, you know, let's just get rid of these cars and we'll stay NASCAR racing. And that's how we kind of, Mosey right into a full-time NASCAR deal. God, I remember that recently. <laughs> I was, I think I was five years old. We've got pictures from the grandstands of that. That was a vicious wreck. That was right into the step steps going up to the flag man and on yeah. fire down in the infield. It was a, it was a hard hit. You had a bad one at Beach Ridge as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was a bad one. One of those deals. It was, I was chasing Cabana for the win and we were down to the, I think it was the last lap and yeah, it was the last lap. And I, I had it all figured out how I was going to beat him. I knew that I couldn't drive around the outside of him, but I kept faking the outside and I pulled to the outside and the guy had got into the wall and backed off the wall and I had my foot to the floor. And when I hit him wide open, I was still wide open. I never made it to make that cut back to the left. And John Paul Cabana said, said to me after I could see the whites of your eyes. I said, yeah, it was a bad wreck. It broke the car right in half. And of course I got hit by everybody behind me. You know, I was there spinning in the middle of the racetrack, but we still ended up seventh in that race. It wasn't too bad. Hey, you lost the race car, but sure. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I remember this and I don't know how, because I was seeing stars after that. I let go. I let go of the shift handle and the, the transmission fell out of the car. 
a radiator was in the infield and I every once in a while like uh kid Jeff that works for me, he's like my car chief right now for the Trans Am deal and he helps us with late models. He brings it up and shows everybody that wreck. It was a vicious wreck. Yeah. But Tony Latart came running over the fence. He thought I was dead. He's pulling on me, You all right, you dead or you dead? I went, No, I'm gonna be if you keep choking me. It was it was hilarious. But yeah, that was a bad that was a bad wreck. I don't. I don't. I feel like we've glossed over your your Bush North Championship years. Uh, I mean, you were you were awesome, Jamie. You got to give yourself a little bit of credit there. And and it was all the same guys that you'd been racing with, Bobby and uh, you know Larry Karen was a big deal at that point on the Bush North Tour. And um, mm-hmm. you know the Lamels had come over. Um, yeah. You know, but but you had Mike Rowe and you had you know, Ralph Nason was racing a little bit up there, and uh, you know, it was, yes, he was. You were you were doing a lot of work against the very best. Well, you know they, those guys were they were great teachers. I paid attention. I learned something early, you know, that I, that I needed to pay attention to learn, you know, what these guys were doing. And so I tried to mimic everything, you know, the really good guys were doing, and they really paid off. And you know, a lot of my success that I've had, and I don't brag about it much. I, you know, we worked hard for it. But my brothers and my crew guys, they were all volunteer guys from my area and they worked their tails off there was nothing you could do to stop these guys it didn't matter you know how bad it was they were there on tuesday night to work and work the whole week every night and go to all the races and travel pay their own way in you know that's the kind of kind of team i had and and i give that a lot of credit to all my success it was they worked hard we all worked hard looking at 1993 tell me what it's like to win at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. Well, it, that was awesome. That was a, that was a great great win. And uh, you know, I got tarnished a little bit by a little bit of wrecking that kind of went on with Dave Dion and I. But we we went to work. I, I, I used to go out to Carl Wagner's. He built all my motors, and Robbie Kraus got me hooked up with Carl and Buick. And uh, you know, we would go out to Wisconsin, and I'd stay with Carl for like two weeks, and I kind of did most of my own engine work. They did all the machine work. And we, we were out there, and I'm watching him. He's building these V8 motors, these uh, Pontiac-headed uh, V8 motors. And I, I watched him run on the dyno. I went, that can't be right. You can't be making that kind of power. He goes, oh, no, that's that's true right there. I said, well, I can run that motor. No, you can't. You're running V6s up there. I said, I'm telling you, Dave Dion has got a V8. Mm-hmm. He's been running. And I think Joey Carafis might have had a V8. There was a couple of them that were running. So he called Ken Farrington. Ken says, sure, I'd love to see it, because I think we're leaning back that way. I think NASCAR is going to lean back to V8. So we never told a soul. Carl said, all right, go out and bin 20, get that motor out it's in pieces, put it together, take it up there. If you win, you you buy it from me. I want $16,000 for it. If you don't win, just give it back to me. And that's another guy that helped me tremendously with his good motors. You know, he, he just he built the greatest motors for me that I could ever have wanted. And so we go to New Hampshire with it, and no one knew we were even running in it. We had a great car that Don Lathart built for us. It was a good light car. And we, we went out there, and that thing was just – my brother and I did it all. It was in our little garage in a farm. We put it all together, and we showed up with it. And people were saying, well, are you nuts? And I said, I don't know. You know, we'll try it. That thing had so much power. It was awesome. You know, and we, had, we were ended up you – know, we were lucky enough to win the darn race. And, you know, not without a little controversy, but we won the thing. And it was just an awesome, awesome feeling to win at, at Loudon because I was, I, you know, I went to just about every race they had there after they put that track together, and I just loved it, and I still love it there. It's an awesome racetrack. 
awesome experience. We kind of mentioned Robbie, but what's it like squaring off with Dave Dion and more than anything really is the Dion brothers as a package. Well, they are a package. Let me tell you. And, and I'm good friends with Dave Dion to this day. He comes down to Sebring and watches us race the road course car and stuff. And I, I saw him up at uh, Brian Latouche's uh, funeral. And we talked for about an hour. And it, it, when you're, when you're up against the Dion's, you're up against the family. You better hang on. And you know, I respect those guys a hundred percent. They have built their own stuff and did all their own work. And, you know, I used to always question Roger, you know, and I, and I talked to Roger once. I said, you know, I never did like any of you, Dion, but I sure do respect you. And he just smiled at me. And as I got along with him, Dave was a tough competitor. Dave did it for a living. You know, he, he was, he was a race car driver for a living. He had to be a tough competitor and a great driver. You know, and it'd get tough every once in a while, but you know, for the most part, it was always pretty square between Dave and I. We, we raced each other pretty clean. You know, it's, it's a traveling circus. Um, week to week, track to track. It's the same basic core group of, of people every week. How do you get along year after year after year running into a guy at, you know, star speedway where you can't help but get into or Riverside park where it's, you know, the tightest racetrack in the world uh, and, and not want to just get him back the following week at Watkins Glen going 150 miles an hour down the straightaway. How do you guys, move on week to week and, and put that behind you year after year after year. It's got to get frustrating. Well, you have to put it behind you. And I always tell, you know, like we've been wrecked a few times in the Trans Am series. Tom has been this year. And I said, Tom, you have to put it behind you. You have to go to the racetrack to do the best that you can do, not to wreck somebody. And I think Stubby and Robbie and Bobby Dragon always install that in my brain. Go there and do the best you can do. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be successful. And that's kind of the way I always looked at it. I, I never, I mean, I've been wrecked by a few people and most of the time it's not intentional. You know, you have to really, you get upset when it happens and you, Oh, you took me out. You know, well, it's very, very, very rarely does a race car driver take another race car driver out intentionally. It happens. You know, you don't, you don't ever mean to wreck anybody, but sometimes it gets out of hand. You just have to put it behind you and, and go on to the next, next race and forget about it. If you can't forget about it, you'll never be successful. You mentioned earlier the fact that you were able to, you know, run a team and break even, if not make a little bit, which is something fairly unheard of nowadays. Yeah. How big for the racing business was the fact that, you know, as we're talking, we've talked about six, seven names that are legendary names if you bring them up around here and six or seven guys that could win any race, you know, they showed up at, whether it was you or Dion or a dragon or cabana and so on and so forth. You look at it now and it's very top heavy where you, wherever you go, you know, you go to thunder road. If Jason Corliss doesn't win, it's a surprise, you know, yeah, you go on the ACT tour, and if you know Jimmy Hebert's not out front, it's a bit of a surprise. How how big to the success of that time period do you think it was the fact that you had so many great drivers who could win any night? Well, it, it was awesome. It, 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 it that that right there teaches you a lot of respect when you've got guys, you know, a number of people that can win any given night. 
and they're all great drivers and they those guys race clean I, I can never remember anything crazy happening you know every once in a while you get sick of somebody and you would spin them or you know they'd chop you off and you end up spinning them but that that whole thing boy it, it just it was it was phenomenal back then it was really i think the word respect is is what what it was built around back then and i and i see a lack of that right now you know and you know it's it's a it's a money a lot of people did not have a lot of money back when i started so you know it was kind of like an even ground for a lot of us i might have been one of the more poor guys but i was too stubborn to give it up and nowadays well you got guys coming in with some pretty nice equipment pretty pretty well hyped up equipment and uh you know it's hard to beat that and and, and tremendous there's a lot of tremendous young drivers out there and they've got good stuff. So I know right now trying to race against these guys like we've been doing a little bit, you got to be spot on the money to even keep up, let alone think about winning. So and there's a few guys that have really got it under control. And, I, you know, I, I don't call them cheaters. I don't think they're cheating. I think they just got their act together. They're good drivers. You know, they spent the money wisely. They got the best that they can get. And they're getting the job done. What does it take to change the attitude, though? You say there's a lack of respect. What does it take to to get those younger drivers to snap out of it? Boy, I, I don't I don't know if I can give you that answer. <laughs> I know what really re, really taught me a lot of respect, and I did I did a really bad thing one time. I, I was leading at Riverside Park. I, I fought with Kelly Moore for lap after lap. He put me in the fence like three three laps right in a row, and I finally got him. Got ahead of him. I was ahead of him clean. He drove it in there, and he spun me. I was so ripped. It was right towards the end of the race. And, uh, I, I was, I, I was out of my mind. I, you know, I got the thing turned around and I got to the back of the pack and they threw the green flag and there was a, I don't know how many laps, not too many left. And I came through that field and I didn't care who I wrecked. I had no respect for anybody. And who do you think I wrecked? Mm. Stub fat. You know, oh. the guy that helped me the most, I wrecked him. I tore him up. And I got out of that car after, and I was never so embarrassed in my whole life. And I said, I'll never, ever do anything like that again. You know, and it really, I, I think I had respect before, but I was wild. And, and in the end result, that whole night, Kelly Moore did not win the race because Dick McCabe took him out. And they, they interviewed Dick McCabe after. And I remember, uh, I remember hearing it. And I was kind of really, I, I was feeling bad that I did what I did. And Dick said, well, I didn't particularly like what he did to Jamie, so I took him out. And the crowd went crazy. <laughs> <laughs> There's some good old times. I'm going to tell you, you know, and, I, and I'm good friends with Kelly and we got, we, we did our share of wrecking each other because it was just impossible to, you know, if a guy took you out, you, you know, you're going to have to stand up to him and do it. You know, if you could do it without wrecking anybody. So we went back and forth a bit, but we finally sat down and said, listen, this is getting either one of us anywhere. So let's just grow up and, and race like we're supposed to. And we did. And we raced great for a lot of years after. Hard, hard racer, Kelly Moore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hard racer. And Kelly always spent the money and always had the good stuff. And Kelly was a good racer. But, boy, he was a hard one. And, eh, I don't You got to be, right? You know, you're there to win. So So we mentioned the, the win at New Hampshire in 93. 94, you get the opportunity to try to qualify with the cup series at New Hampshire. What do you remember about that experience? Well, there was, it was, that was an awesome experience. We had, we had a speaking of road racing. There was a Derek Cope road race car that uh, Doug Innes up in uh, Canada had bought. And he, he'd asked me if I wanted to 
try to qualify for the for the cup race. And I said, well, yeah, I said, what, what do we need to do? And I said, oh, we got to find some tire money. So I, I talked to Patrick Henry. He was one of the owners of Mountain Racing and it had been, uh, you know, kind of split up at that point. And he said, sure, I'll help you out. So he bought me some tires and we had a chance to go over there and the car wasn't too bad. You know, I should have made it in the show, but uh, I guess we weren't smart enough or we were too cheap or somebody was too cheap to put sticker tires on to qualify the second round. It was in the morning on sticker tires. We were easily fast enough to qualify for the race. And I missed it by just a, just a tick. I, I almost made it in the show and that was kind of heartbreaking, but it was a good experience. You, you ran Daytona a few times in that era. And, um, I didn't realize this until about an hour ago before we started recording that, um, I had done some research and you drove for Jack Ingram. Is that correct? I did. That was, that was my first opportunity to drive NASCAR. I remember the year before I did it, I, I went down there watching. I said, well, I don't think I could ever do this. Those guys are flying. I won that championship and they said, geez, you need to go to Daytona. I said, well, I'd love to. And uh, I got a phone call down there and they said, get your butt down to Daytona. You know, I don't even know if I should be talking about this because, I mean, it was something NASCAR. NASCAR kind of wanted some guys from the north to run, and I wasn't the only one. There's a few guys that ran Daytona. So I drove down there, and I said, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, all I got is, like, guaranteed starting spot to offer anybody. I don't have any sponsorship. And uh, they said, well, you need to go down and see Jack Ingram. I went, Jack Ingram. Oh, man. What yeah. am I going to say to him? Just go down there and talk to him. So I went down, I introduced myself. I don't know who you are. He goes, he's. Jack the Iron Man, you know, he, he threw my, we were at Darlington one race before that. And I, I guess there was an imaginary line in the garage area in the center. And I guess I had one of my tires over that imaginary line and I was parked next to Jack Ingram. He grabbed that tire and it was like a monsoon down. It was pouring out, threw it right over the top of my car and out into the rain said, get your stuff off my side of the fence. So I went, wow, that guy's a hardcore, right? So I, I'm down there in Daytona and they said, have you got your physical yet? I said, no, I don't. Uh, well, I'll go down to the infield and get it done. So I did that. And I came back. I said, Jack, what's going on? I said, uh, he said, well, what do you got for sponsorship? Jack Ingram was a racer for money. He, he earned his living as a racer and a great racer. And I said, well, I, all I got is, you know, probably 9,500. That was a guaranteed starting spot to finish the race. And he said, yeah, well, I don't know. He said, I got this dirt guy here. He's out there. He's, I don't know what he's doing. So he had a transmission problem with his car. The shifter had broke. And, and it, consequently, I mean, I, I just happened to be lucky enough, like a few, you know, like a month before I beat it, I had the same thing go wrong with my, my shifter in one of my cars. And he, the guy, guy's in the wrong gear. And I said, maybe the shifter's broke, Jack. Well, change the training. I said, let me crawl underneath there and look. And he hadn't given me the ride yet. I crawled underneath there. I pulled a plate off the bottom of the shifter. And sure as heck, the pin was broke. I said, just put a new shifter on it. You'll be good. So he puts a new shifter on, sends a guy out there again. And then he comes in and he goes, all right, bring your helmet tomorrow. He said, you're driving. So I said, okay, sounds good to me. So I get down to Daytona the next morning. It's raining out. And uh, I'm, I'm going, oh, boy. And here comes his driver. And he comes in. And I said, I guess I got to be the bearer of bad news, but you're not driving this car. I am. And he was madder than heck, and you ran off. And Jack said, well, you got to get out on the track because they're not going to let you qualify. It's raining out. So, I mean, you know what? I said, I'll, I'll get out there somehow. So we, I ended up riding around the infield, not riding around the, the apron in the rain to say that I had been on a racetrack. And my first lap around Daytona, 
was qualifying wide open. You know, it, it was quite an experience. It was a lot of fun. Scared the heck out of me at first, but once I, you know, once I got that one down to the second lap, that was good. I could hold her wide open, and we did all right. And Jack was awesome. He was a, you know, I got to be really good friends, and he, and he invited me to move down there and move in with him and drive for him after the race. We didn't wreck his car. We had a fuel pump problem right at the end, and didn't didn't quite get what we should have got out of it. But you know, I brought his car home clean, and he was happy with that. And I was I was thrilled just to just to be driving for him, and you know, for that. You know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't move down. We were still in, in the middle of a good thing up here, and stayed up here and ran some more. And and the second time I went, I, I went with uh, Dick Bear. Uh, called me and said, "Hey, why don't you come on down? I got a car. We'll go to Daytona." Dick is an awesome guy. Hmm. So we went. We ran his car. We did all right with it. You know, it was a medium, mediocre, medium track car. And and then the third year, I had Carl Wagner's car. It was one of Bobby Labonte's uh, Speedway cars, and we ran really good. I was following Jeff Fuller, and I think I was up to 7th or 11th or something like that, and pretty awesome. The car would draft like crazy, and uh, I, I was learning about it. Michael Walter let me draft with him the first time in three, you know, the third year that anybody would even let you near him at Daytona if you were so-called kind of rookie. But uh, Michael Walter took me out and, and, let, and taught me a lot about drafting, and uh, Joe Nemechek gave me some advice along the way, and we had a good run going, and a guy blew a Jeff Fuller blew a blew a rotor up right in front of me, and my windshield got covered with brake fluid, and I could not see through it. I had to feel my way to the apron to get in the pit road. Did not see a Daytona at a 175 miles an hour. Kind of kind of weird. And I got in there and I got speeding down pit road, and I had to come back in. I did everything wrong basically, but yeah, we ended up all right. You know, we finished the race. And that was that was what we were there for. I actually do remember watching that one on TV and and thinking, "Holy crap, he's in the top 10." <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it was, when you're when you're a kid and, and watching you, you know, do that, you know, it was pretty cool for a for a Vermont kid to see, you know, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of us on TV. You know, it, I look back on that whole experience. Every we we went to a lot of racetracks and it was it was because of mountain racing. They 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 allowed me to do it and they funded the deal. We'd go down to Darlington to Rockingham you know, and I loved Dover. Whenever we went to Dover, I just loved Dover. And uh, it, I just had a really great opportunity quite a few times to do things. And, well, I really appreciate it. You know, I don't know if I ever thank those guys enough for, for giving me that opportunity. Looking back, how important was it for you that you got the opportunity to take those chances and try those things? Well, you know, I didn't even realize at the time how important it was. But looking back on it, it was incredible, you know. And, and the guy that I haven't mentioned much in, in all this, you know, these crazy stories I'm telling was Dick Glines. Dick Glines is another guy. You know, he was Robbie's crew chief for, you know, quite a few of their championship years. I think all of them maybe. And uh, he came to be our crew chief, uh, I think it was in 1990 or 80, 89 or 90. And, oh, he was awesome. I mean, he was he he did so many things for me and he taught me a lot about driving. He was a good driver himself, but a brilliant crew chief. He just knew how to do things. He could talk me into going fast when I was not fast. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And so I, I owe him a lot of thanks as well as so many others that I, that I'm probably not even going to think of tonight, but you know, I had a, I've had a great run. It's It's been awesome to be able to get down there and do that and make friends with Bobby LeBounty and the Burton boys. I mean, I, I was racing against them all the time and got to be friends with them and, you know, got to be good friends with Dale Earnhardt Sr. I just because I raced with him. You know, he got a kick out of me. He knew I was. He called me the dirt farmer. 
from up in, up in Vermont. You know, he just, I never knew he even hardly knew me, you know. I went down there when I did the team in New York and bought some equipment from DEI and Randy was still alive then. He said, boy, Dale really liked you. He got a kick out of you. And, and I, I used to talk with him all the time and he'd jump on my back, try to tackle me. You know, you big boy, I can take you down. Dale Earnhardt was a pretty tough guy. <laughs> but I'd never go down with him. We had a lot of fun together. And, you know, I really, he, he's just the most fantastic thing that ever raced. You know, he's just quite an incredible person. But, you know, I got to know all these people. Bobby LeBounty, good friends with him. My daughter grew up in Bobby LeBounty's arms, you know. I mean, that, that's pretty big. And guess who, who, who she cheered for all of her life, you know. She was a Bobby LeBounty lover, so. You mentioned. Yeah, a lot of good things. You mentioned it, or her, how important was your family being willing to go on this crazy ride with you? Well, my dad thought I was crazy. He, uh, you know, he'd watch me work all night, right through the whole night to put a roll cage in a car. And he'd come down, he'd come out of the house at, at night and say, if you'd work this hard on the farm, we'd all be millionaires. And, you know, he just thought I was crazy. And he never, he didn't just work all the time. My dad was a working, working farmer. And finally, to the later parts, he was at the race at Catamount that I won the 300. And uh, he, he finally started, my cousins would bring him to the races. And he finally started enjoying it through his retirement. And, uh, that was cool, you know, but he could never really get involved with it. Crying out loud, my mother, she was so afraid of it all. You know, she'd come out when we were getting ready to go with the old 57 Chevy and she'd dump holy water on it. And, you know, she was a really religious person. She had eight kids, you know. I don't know how all that worked. But anyway, it seems like every time she put the holy water to it, I'd wreck that car. I'd go, oh, my goodness. But a lot of fun times. I mean, but my brothers were right with me and my sisters loved it and they used to go watch and stuff that was about the extent of the family thing. No one raced in my family. They never, they never did it. It's just my cousins liked it a lot because they were in the cars and they started bringing me and that's where it kind of all grabbed. So now with, I'm going to skip ahead again, but talking about family with, with Heather, your daughter, um, being so involved with it, if you are at all, uh, how involved are you with the dirt cars with, with Walt and Walter Hammond? Well, I follow them all the time. I, I don't, uh, have any time at all to ever try to help them. Not that I could, because I don't know much about dirt racing, but I, I follow them religiously. I get to watch their, their different uh, podcasts and stuff. And, you know, I just think it's a great thing they're doing. I, I, I'd love to see more of that. That's a, that's a family tradition type of racing they're doing and they work hard at it and they're, they're underfunded. They're not, they're not people with a whole bunch of money to throw out and they're running very good. Mm-hmm. So I really, I support her and I tell her, you know, you just, she goes, Dad, you're going to race next weekend. I got to go. There. Said, you go with Walt. And every once in a while, she'll, she'll blow Walt off and go with me. But I really want her to. She's committed to it, and they're committed. It's a great family organization, and you know, I'm proud of the whole thing. I'm, I'm really impressed that the, there's still some of that going on out there. Now, you raced with, with the Hammonds before that all started, right? Well, I did, and you were right the there. You were, yeah. You were in victory lane, and the, the night I beat Walt, I ended up winning that race, and he was second in the – Heather and Walt met each other that night. So that gives you any fault. kind of crazy history. Yeah. 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 So this is your fault. Yeah, it's my fault. But hey, you know what? <laughs> great, great guy. Great family. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of her. She's got a great teaching job up there where they live. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it's a, a wonderful opportunity. And I think they'll be together for a long time. They, they'll eventually marry, I'm pretty sure. Now we're in 2021. And, you mentioned it. You're racing against Joey LaCare at a White <laughs> Mountain, and 
we ca- talked to Cabana a few months ago, and he's still, you know, doing hot laps at his driving school. And yeah, does it give you a a bit of pride that some of the guys from your generation are still going? Yeah, it does. You know, I enjoy racing with Joey. You know, a lot of people think he's a little too wild or whatever, but Joey races me clean. I race him clean. Uh, there's other guys that are, you know, that have been around a long time. And Dave LeBrecht, uh, the guy that I, you know, I, I, yeah. I think he started like when I did, you know, and he's still yeah. doing it. You know, he's out yeah. there running around and a lot of the guys are still there and it's, it's fun racing with them. And tell you what, though, it's hard keeping up with these youngsters. Dave LeBrecht, that's a great name, man. That's, uh, you know, 30, 40 years of finishing 20th. And I'm not picking on the guy, but that's, that's somebody no. who loves to race. He loves to race. He really does. And, you know, there's still a lot of those guys that are out doing that, boy. You know, uh, Quinny Welch, uh, he, he's probably as good as anybody ever was up there at White Mountain. And he's still at it and winning. And uh, Stacy Cahoon, you know, mm-hmm. he's got to be at least as old as I am. And he's out there winning championships. So, you know, it's fun racing against those guys. And those guys are great racers, man. They're good. How much racing are you going to do this year? Oh, I don't know. I guess as, as much as we can. I, I think it's really good for Tom Sheehan, my boss, and the road racer. Uh, he's getting some short track experience, and I see the improvement at the road course. He's, you know, it's a uh, – he never experienced that, you know, bumper to bumper, door to door. You never get away from traffic, and it's really doing him a lot of good. So as much as we can, we're going to try to do. He wanted to go this weekend, but I've got a lot of work to do to the road course cars to get him ready. We're going out for six weeks here right in a row. So when we get back. We get back. We'll probably uh, we'll do a few more. So we got a few quick hitter questions for you, and then we'll let you go. And thank you for giving us so much of your time here. Got uh, fun. First question: Who's one of the most underrated drivers you ever raced against? Someone who maybe didn't get the notoriety or the big name, but was a hell of a wheelman. Robbie Crouch. Underrated. Yeah, he. I, I'm not gonna say he was underrated, but he was a guy that should have went cup racing. He was uh-huh. that good, you know. He definitely that good, and you know, as far as anybody being underrated, uh, oh, I don't know. Everybody's underrated, in my opinion. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work. You know, he just, uh, you know, I, I, I just always said Robbie Crouch should have been the guy that went cup racing. Uh, you know, all the great guys that had the race play, a lot of them weren't underrated because they were that good. You know, the Dragons and the Cabanas and, you know, Claude Oban up there in Canada and all those guys. I mean, I, I, I barely remember anybody that wasn't famous. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, my, my question that I ask every show is, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a race car? Oh, boy, I've done a lot of dumb ones. I, you know, probably, I guess probably the dumbest thing I ever did, and I'm not talking about wrecking or anything like that, was my seatbelt popped one time, and I, I stayed out on a track for about five laps before I gave it up. That was probably the dumbest thing I ever did. Ooh, where was I that? I don't know. I mean, Scoutamouth Stadium. I, had, mm. I finally pulled in the infield. It was in a heat race, and I was qualifying, and I finally gave it up. I said, this is crazy. Probably the dumbest thing I ever did. And, you know, probably, maybe, maybe I should say, when I was down south, and we did take a venture down there in 1990, uh, Dick Glines moved down with us, and we, we rented a shop from Dick Bear. 
we were going to try to run the Southern thing and we were starting to do pretty good. And I, you know, we decided, well, that's a lot of money. And, you know, maybe we just ought to go home and try to run for the championship again. I guess it was 89. It was the year we were down there. And so we came home and probably the craziest thing I ever did was come home. Cause I think I probably could have made it down there. I had a lot of friends and I, 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 if I had a little bit of money, I could have had almost any ride in the South. I didn't have any money. You know, $150,000 back in those days was like a million today. So I, I didn't have that kind of money, and I was really pleased with what we were doing. I loved the car owners and the team I was with, so we came home. Probably the dumbest thing I did. Finally, what was the best race that you remember seeing in person that you weren't involved as a fan? Probably it was at Martinsville, and I was just there as a spectator. It was Richie Evans. And, and Bodine oh, man. going at it, going at it, going at it. And Richie Evans on his roof and then Bodine got into it. They're fighting for the win, won the race on his roof. So I, that was a, the wildest, craziest race I've ever watched. You were there. It was awesome. awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. That's the most famous modified race of all time. That's cool. That you're yeah. yeah. No, I was sitting right there where they did it. I went, wow. Unbelievable. So Jamie, what's, What's next? I mean, you've been doing this for damn near 50 years. What? How long are you going to keep going? Boy, I don't know. You know, I, I am getting kind of old, I guess. So, you know, I, I feel young when I'm in that stupid race car. I don't feel bad at all. I'm still, you know, still, still overweight the way I was all my life. Uh, but I feel good. I don't, I don't tire out. I, I still think my reflexes are very good. But I don't know. You know, I've got to camp up in the White Mountains, and I enjoy going up there and just taking it easy, but I really, really love working on the cars and being a part of it. So as, as a driver, oh, I, I'm probably not going to drive too many more races, but I'll probably be in it until, until it's no more fun. If it's no more fun, then I'll retire. But there's no real reason to retire at this point. So I'll just keep digging away. Have you ever had a real job? Do you have anything to fall back on? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I had, <laughs> okay. I had one business in Vermont. I've had several real jobs, but Right. This has been a been an awesome run, man. Saying you've made a living doing this this many years has really been pretty spectacular. Well, you've made a lot of fans along the way, and uh, you know you're talking to two of them right now. We we thank you for for a lot of memories on the grandstands, but thanks for the time tonight as well. Well, I really appreciate it, and I I like to thank all the fans I've had, and I've had tremendous support from the Hampshire people, mostly from Vermont because I grew up there, but they've, they've, they've been supportive right up through and cheering for me, and they still are pretty amazing. Once again, thank you to Jamie Obi. Happy to have him as a guest here on Uncommon Deeds and some great stories and kept uh, been on a little run here out of the Bush North. Yeah. I guess we're going to have to get um, some more Bush North drivers. <laughs> I was drawing a blank right that there. Was, <laughs> that was a heck of a buildup for no pay. That'll, That'll be good. Everyone's waiting like he's about to say Randy LaJoy. He's Randy about Craig. to say Kevin, Kevin LePage. No, he was going to say nothing. Nope. Should get uh, more of uh, those guys. <laughs> you found yep. a secret. He knows no Bush North history <laughs> at all. I could name them all. I just that is that is uh, uh, Justin's deep dark secret. 
He knows everything about New England racing except for Bush North. <laughs> except that entire series. Yep. On a separate note, uh, <laughs> all of you that have reached out for decals, yep. those hopefully as you're listening to this on Friday or if you've given us a couple extra days buffer, oh no, whenever you're listening, yeah. those should be in the mail. And I guess if you've given it a few days buffer or more, you might already have right them. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully those are headed out at the end of this week to the people who have reached out and give us given us your mailing addresses. Mm-hmm. Feel free, if you have not reached out to us yet, you can still do so. We still have some. Yeah. Reach out to us on the Facebook or the Instagram and we can get some of those headed in your direction. We'd like to get out just out of our houses at some time. Maybe check out a race at Thunder Road or somewhere and we'll bring some decals with us. But for now, that seems like the best way if you want some is to, to reach out to us because we are not going many places. Well, we bought a roll of stamps, so we better use them up. Right? Yeah. Oh, and oh, when you get your decals, yeah, and you put them on things, we want to see those things. Give us a picture. Yeah, take some pictures of them on your race car, on your laptop, on your toddler, on your toddler. Send us the pictures on Facebook, on Instagram. Tom, you were over last weekend. Yes. Uh, brought the water slide. Yep. And we didn't think to stick any decals on any of the toddlers. That is true. And if we're being, you know what? I feel like it's important for everyone to know that we all make mistakes. And Justin was hosting a small barbecue gathering. A little post-COVID get-together. Our first uh, vaccinated get-together. Yeah. And we had separate business plans during this rendezvous because Justin and I have only been in person with each other. That sounds weird. And once in the last year and a half, at least. More than that. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Other than a random rendezvous at uh, Yeah, we were walking down the sidewalk. We were leaving Echo when you were headed to Echo. Yeah. Um, But so when we get the opportunity to see each other, there are certain things that we should try to get done in that time. And we had some paperwork that needed to be signed by Justin Mm -hmm. on our banking end for Uncommon Media. And I needed to get some decals that I had promised to give out on my end. So those are the only two things we had to do outside of have lovely conversation with like, each other, other people, eat some food, watch our kids play. Not a like stressful we, we day. We talked about this specifically, like as you were leaving your driveway. Yeah. It was only an hour drive. And we... We biffed on that. Yeah, and uh, after whatever, we were there for 
four hours or so, five hours, whatever it was. We left, and I got almost all the way home before I realized I did not get Justin to sign the paperwork I needed to return. And I also did not receive the decals from Justin that I needed to give out. Mm-hmm. So we all make mistakes. I gave Tom a tour of the house with our new construction done. We stood right next to the desk with the Russ Ingerson trophy that we looked at that has the envelope full of decals sitting next to it. Totally forgot about it. And then we loaded all of Tom's kids and stuff in his van and paperwork sitting right there on the side of the seat. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. We were not the swiftest boys this weekend. It was so hot that day. We couldn't remember anything. That is true. It was 9 million degrees out. But we are going to get out some decals this week. So send us. Yeah, no, they're in. by, By the time this hits, they'll be in the mail. Other than that, keep liking, subscribing, Apple Podcasts, leave us that five-star review. Pow. Facebook, Uncommon Deeds. Twitter, Uncommon Deeds. Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. We like to hear your messages. We love to hear hear your comments, so keep sending them our way. You know, we're getting some good ones. Shout out Sid Sweet just has been laying down some, like, poetic stuff and making us feel far more important than we really are. Yeah. Thank you, Sid. But we, uh, we definitely read them all. We comment on them all. Sometimes, like you said, at the same time. From... <laughs> different parts of the state so keep reaching out to us until next episode you've been listening to the uncommon deeds podcast a production of uncommon media